many, many voters who voted for the Republican candidate agreed that the Democratic Party did more to help them materially, but they also agreed that the Republican Party represented their values more. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. I'm Andy Gawthorpe, host of America Explained. Thanks for tuning in again. If you like what we do here, then please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use to listen to the show. That really helps us out. It's a way of getting new listeners to discover our show, and we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. So in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about a topic that's on the mind of, of pretty much every pundit and media commentator in America right now, which is how are the Democrats doing? The Democratic parties now had unified control of the national government, of both houses of Congress, however thin their margins might be, and of the presidency for nearly a year. And how have they been using that power? Have they been using it in ways which make them likely to win future elections? Last week, we had a couple of big things happened that, that gave kind of contradictory information about this. So last week was election day 2021. So on Tuesday, there were elections up and down the country, but particularly notably in Virginia and New Jersey for the governorships of those uh, states. And the Democrats did pretty badly in these elections. But then later that week, Congress finally passed the second major piece of legislation under the Biden administration, which was an infrastructure bill, something that both parties have been trying to achieve for years and years and years now, but the Democrats finally got it done. So what does this, all? if you, if you add all of this up, what does it mean for how the party's doing and their prospects in the midterms and the presidential election of 2024? That's what I'm going to be talking about today. So... Just to start off by talking about those elections, so the as I said, the, the, the elections that everyone kind of had their eye on last week were these ones for the governor's mansion in Virginia and New Jersey, and the Democrats lost the governorship of Virginia, and they came very, very close to losing the governorship of New Jersey, although they did just win that in the end. And both of these results represented really, really big swings away from the Democratic Party based on how those states voted either in their last election for governor or um, how they voted in the presidential election of, of 2020. Virginia especially was a state that most people now consider to be just a blue state, didn't even really regard it as a swing state anymore because it voted for Democrats so frequently, had a Democratic governor for a really long time. New Jersey has, in presidential elections, been a solid blue state for a long time, but in the past, um, it's uh, the, the governor's mansion has kind of swung backwards and forwards between Republicans and Democrats. But the Democratic victory in New Jersey in the last presidential election was so overwhelming that we just kind of assumed that was going to carry over very easily into this, uh, this governor election. Another election that people were watching really closely was an election in San Antonio for a seat in the Texas legislature. Now that sound might sound like kind of a really minor thing, and I guess in, in a way it is a minor thing, but this was a really heavily Hispanic area of San Antonio, and you may remember that last year in the presidential election, the Democrats did very poorly with Hispanics in South Texas, and this was kind of something, well indeed they did very poorly with Hispanics up and down the country, but it was particularly notable in South Texas. Some of the states, uh, or the counties rather, that 
experienced their biggest swings away from the Democrats and towards Trump in the presidential election of last year were in these really heavily Hispanic areas of South Texas. And this kind of, you know, goes against the usual narrative we have that Hispanics are a, a safe voting group for Democrats. You know, even we, you know, there's been this argument put forward in the past about uh, demographics meaning destiny and this meaning that as um, America becomes more and more Hispanic, it'll be more and more easier for the Democrats to win elections. But this is proving not to be the case. And this San, San Antonio and um, Texas House seat um, was further confirmation of, of this trend. So a Republican won this heavily Hispanic part of Texas. And this again represented a really, really big swing away from the Democrats compared to the last election that took place in that seat. So when you add all this up, Democrats losing the governor's mansion in Virginia, coming close to losing it in New Jersey, and then you look at what happened in this very Hispanic Texas House seat, as well as some other smaller local elections that, that took place so on Long Island as well, for instance, there were some local elections in very heavily blue collar areas that again showed big swings away from the Democrats. And you add all of this up and it kind of shows that the Democrats are not doing well in national politics at the moment. And they're really, really on course to doing very, very badly in the midterm elections of next year. There's, there's, there's always so many different reasons for these, um, you know, big swings towards one party or away from another, and it's often difficult from the data we have available to, to really kind of confidently talk about why something happened. But there are a few things that, that really stand out from this data for me. So the first one of the, those things is that it seems to be clear that Democrats are struggling a little bit with wealthier white suburban voters, the sort of voters who voted for Joe Biden last year, but prefer to vote for Republican congressional candidates and might in a universe in which Donald Trump was not the main standard bearer of the Republican Party, these voters would probably be voting Republican up and down the ticket, but they were driven away from the party by Trump into the arms of Joe Biden at the presidential election at least, but they obviously really don't want to give Democrats unified, complete control of the government. So they're very, very willing to vote against the Democrats, you know, when other elections in which Donald Trump is not on the ticket are in front of them. This is something that we see really clearly in the Northern Virginia suburbs, which have been kind of key to, to, to making Virginia a much bluer state, but now seems to be tending back, back red again, and also in the southern suburbs of New Jersey as well. Another thing that really stood out from these results was that Democrats really continue to struggle with lesser educated voters, particularly voters in rural areas and blue collar voters as well in, in more urban areas. So in Virginia, there the, the continue to be just this like huge trend of increased turnout of white rural conservative voters coming out and voting for Republicans in huge numbers, huger numbers than we kind of imagined were possible in the past. And part of this may be because of changes that have been made to how, you know, to make it easier to vote. So as a result of the COVID pandemic, many, many states expanded access to the ballot, which is a great thing. Democracy is a great thing, and nobody should ever say that this is bad just because it results in more people voting for Republicans, but that has been a side effect of what's happened here. It has been part of that process. So this, in the past, Democrats have often assumed that basically higher turnout would mean a much bluer electorate and would make it easier for them to win elections. But it's increasingly clear that there are a lot of voters in redder parts of various states, including Virginia, 
who are taking advantage of this increased access to the ballot as well. So, you know, this is making it in some ways harder for Democrats to win elections. So th those are some of the trends that have been driving these results. But then we might ask, well, why? You know, like, why is it the case that, that we've seen these big swings away from Democrats and that these various groups of voters feel the way that they do? And I think particularly, you know, we should focus on those suburban voters because they're the ones who are really going to be key to democratic performance in the midterms of next year. So it's almost always the case that whenever one party holds the presidency, the next midterm election sees that party lose really badly and, and, you know, often lose control of Congress. The last time that this didn't happen was way back in 2002 when George W. Bush was kind of riding this patriotic wave after 9-11. So the Democrats had, you know, they're already against kind of the accumulated weight of history in these midterm elections next year. But these results really confirmed, you know, that the, 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 there's no reason to think that that trend is not holding in this case and that indeed it looks towards the worst end of the various scenarios that we might imagine for the Democrats. So why is that the case? Well, there's a few things. And one of those, the first, which is kind of linked to the others, is just that Biden's approval rating is, is kind of low right now. It's actually very low for, um, for presidents at this stage, historically speaking. This has been driven by a number of things, including, you know, how badly the withdrawal from Afghanistan was handled, people's concerns over the economy and particularly inflation with many Americans seeing very, very high prices at gas pumps and grocery stores across the nation. I think it's also somewhat related to just the frustration that so many people are feeling about the fact that the COVID pandemic is still lingering. You know, Biden was elected on this platform of basically saying, I will bring competence back to government and we will deal with the COVID pandemic as soon as possible. But this didn't factor in the, the Delta variant, which, you know, has spread and is, is by far now the, the most dominant variant of coronavirus in the United States, and which is still really, really eating through communities, causing very high numbers of deaths, causing many states and localities to still have a lot of restrictions in place, you know, causing unpopular things like vaccine mandates. So I think when you add all of these things together, and then you combine that with the fact that the Democratic Party has spent much of the last six months just kind of having this debate with each other in Congress about these twin pieces of legislation that they want to pass. So on the one hand, the infrastructure bill, on the other hand, this what, what's sometimes called the reconciliation bill or the build back better bill, which is this kind of grab bag of, of social care and environmental provisions, which, which is more the agenda of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And the fact that this, this just kind of ongoing debate between moderates and progressives within the Democratic Party about, you know, what order they're going to pass these bills in, what's going to be in which bill, what's going to get left out or go into them at the end of the day, has not really, you know, allowed the party to demonstrate strong leadership, kind of a strong brand, to really show people what they stand for. You know, it's just kind of a rule of politics that the more people see something debated, the less popular that thing tends to become over time. And the Democrats have tested this maxim, you know, to, to, to the millionth degree over the last year, just with this constant kind of wrangling among each other. Another thing that seemed to really play a role in the Virginia election, and, and, and perhaps results elsewhere as well, but it still kind of remains to be seen whether this is just an issue that's very local to Virginia, is to do with education, and particularly public schools. The coronavirus pandemic was so difficult on parents who had kids in public school and were suddenly faced with the closure of these schools and then having to 
basically homeschool their kids, you know, sometimes they did this via like a Zoom connection or a Skype connection so that you know, the teacher would be teaching to a class, but parents were still responsible, you know, for, for, for disciplining their kid, making sure they stayed on track, helping them much more with work in person. This was such a grueling experience and in Virginia, it, it seems to have um, basically these concerns that people have had over whether public school districts handled this process very well, whether the schools were too slow to reopen because Virginia had some of the latest schools in the nation to reopen after the worst of the pandemic. This has really caused a lot of frustration with an awful lot of parents, you know, over how the school system has been handled in Virginia. And then I also think that this has given parents, for the first time or, or at least in a way that they didn't experience before, a real insight into, you know, actually how well their school is doing at educating their children on a day-to-day -day basis, because it was no longer happening in a classroom, it was happening in their living room right at home. This has really also intersected with these concerns that have been really pushed very, very hard by conservative media about so-called critical race theory, about the way that America's history of slavery and racism has been taught in public school classrooms. And I think the fact that parents were already so primed to be critical of their schools because of the coronavirus pandemic created very fertile ground for, for, for this kind of conservative narrative that, you know, oh, the schools are too busy worrying about teaching your kids that America is an evil racist country than they are about reopening and just kind of delivering the bread and butter of education. Now, Republicans plan to take this playbook that they've just run to do with education and public schools in Virginia and basically rerun that just up and down the nation in the midterm elections next year. They really, really want to make education one of their biggest issues going forward. But it's not really clear at the moment if this can be generalized beyond Virginia to other, other states and other counties. You know, Virginia's experience with schools during the pandemic was somewhat unique, but then you also had this really, really bad gaffe by the Democratic candidate for governor in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, who said at a debate with his opponent, uh, Glenn Youngking, that basically the quote was to the effect that parents should not be telling schools what to teach their children. And this just went down so, so badly with so many suburban parents in Virginia who had just spent the last year or more being intimately concerned with their children's education, intimately concerned with their schooling, and, you know, often to the extent that they were disrupting the rest of their lives completely to make that happen. I mean, I know this, this happened to me, I just have a toddler who's two years old, not even in school. That was disruptive enough, even though she could go to daycare for much of the pandemic. But you know, many parents had kids basically at home in their living room being schooled for months and months and months and months on end. So it was just really, really bad for, for Terry McAuliffe to say this to basically tell parents that it was none of their business what happened with their children's education when they'd just been through this, this particular experience. So whether this strategy is just kind of, it worked in Virginia because Terry McAuliffe just handled it so badly, or whether it's gonna work elsewhere in the nation is still to be decided. But I think that, you know, if, if it does work elsewhere in the nation, it's another reason to think that Democrats are in for a really, really bad midterm next year. <laughs> You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform.
So, the other thing that happened last week, which gives Democrats a lot more reason for cheer, is that they finally passed an infrastructure bill through Congress last Friday, and it went to Joe Biden for his signature. This kind of generational investment in America's infrastructure is something that both parties have been trying to accomplish for a really, really long time. It became kind of a running joke during the Trump presidency because the White House kept declaring that this week was going to be infrastructure week, but then Donald Trump would tweet something racist or someone in his administration would do something corrupt, and then infrastructure would just be swept off the agenda and, and you know, he never managed to deliver on this during his presidency, you know, given how just chaotic and disorganized and incompetent his presidency was. So the fact that Democrats have delivered this, they've delivered what's actually the biggest investment in the nation's infrastructure since Eisenhower created the interstate highway system in the 1950s. This is a real, you know, feather in their cap. It's a real point in their favor. And the bill includes not just a huge investment in America's physical infrastructure, so things like road, like rail, like broadband internet, bridges, tunnels, this sort of thing. It also includes a huge chunk of money for what's known as climate resilience. And that's helping, uh, you know, helping cities and localities all up, up and down the nation. Places like the southern coast of Louisiana, which are really suffering from, from climate change right now, you know, suffering the effects of it right now, their infrastructure needs updating, these, these states are going to get a huge amount of federal money to do that. And there's also a couple of other things in the infrastructure bill as well, so it includes things like funding for like blue sky energy projects, like so-called clean hydrogen. So there's an environmental component to this bill as well, just been one that's basically about pouring cement and building physical infrastructure. So this bill is really impressive, um, but I think it's also true to say that its electoral impact is quite unclear, I think. It's going to take a couple of years for projects to actually start being approved and, and, and start being built due to this money. So even though some economists predict that, that you know this, this bill could eventually create somewhere between half a million and a million jobs, mostly blue collar jobs, jobs that you don't need a college degree for, it's going to be a while, I think, until we actually start to see the benefits of that. But, you know, once that does start to come through, perhaps more so before the presidential election than, than the midterm election, this could have, you know, some electoral benefits for the Democrats. It's definitely an impressive accomplishment, even if it's not one that's going to immediately transform people's lives. So I think that what's actually more important than the infrastructure bill is the Build Back Better bill, which Democrats are still debating right now. This bill includes many more measures that are really going to help families up and down the country pretty much from as soon as they're passed. So things like a continuation of a child tax credit, which gives a lump sum of dollars every month to every family with a child, as long as they earn below a minimum income. Things like universal um, pre-kindergarten education for um, children aged three and four. Things like help with childcare costs. These are things that are really going to help families and actually potentially also those same families, those kind of suburban families who, who swung more towards the Republicans because of their concern of education issues in this election last week. The Build Back Better agenda also includes a really huge investment in tackling climate change, something of the magnitude of half a trillion dollars in order to tackle climate change. So it's something that, you know, not only goes a long way to tackle this, this very important issue, although by no means far enough, but it can also be very motivating for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. 
really help them show that this kind of bargain that they've made with moderates in order to govern together is going to bring home some red meat to the progressive side. Now, unfortunately, some of the most important provisions um, to tackle climate change that were included in this bill initially have already been stripped out. So probably the most important tool that the US could use to tackle climate change is something called a clean energy standard. This basically requires power companies to start producing a certain amount of electricity from renewable sources by 2030 or to face really, really steep fines. So basically, they will be forced to pay huge amounts of money in fines to the government unless they make this energy transition. And that would really change the economics of power production in the United States and do a huge amount in order to shift the country towards renewable energy. That unfortunately has already been taken out of the bill, mainly due to the concerns that Senator Joe Manchin had. And I think that there's a real risk that Democrats might water this bill down even further. You know, particularly, although I think this would be a completely incorrect way to understand what happened last week, I think there's a chance that Democratic moderates might look at these bad election results last week and say, oh, well, basically, we've been punished by voters because we're too progressive, we're too bold in our agenda, so actually what we need to do is kind of rein it in a little bit, make sure that we don't scare voters with these really big expensive measures. I don't think that's the right way to interpret what happened last week. I don't think in any way that the Democrats' economic or environmental agenda was really on the ballot last week at all. So I think this would be really the wrong lesson, but I do think there's a risk that some Democrats in Congress see things that way. So we've now just really got to keep our fingers crossed, hope that this agenda, which could do so much in order to transform both the lives of families in America, but also its approach to the issue of climate change, that this doesn't get watered down any further as it moves through Congress. I think a, a bigger risk that Democrats face is that they are kind of hoping that by doing all of these things to help voters materially, you know, to, to make them wealthier, to help them with childcare, help them in their day-to-day -day lives, that this is going to win over voters. And I think it is an open question when the Republican Party bases its appeals so much on appeals to values and to culture that Democrats maybe, you know, there's only so much they can do by appealing to people's pocketbook. I saw some uh, the results of some focus groups that took place in Virginia where many, many voters who voted for the Republican candidate agreed that the Democratic Party did more to help them materially, but they also agreed that the Republican Party represented their values more. And that kind of uh, trade-off that people feel, these kind of twin pressures that people feel to, to either kind of speak to their material interests or speak to their values is not one that the Democratic Party always wins. So they really have to hope that people really notice the day-to-day -day improvements in their lives as a result of this legislation and also that they really value that. So it's really important, I think, for Biden and, and Democrats all over the country to get out there and really sell this agenda to spell out what it means for people and how it's going to improve their lives. If the party can do that, then maybe it stands a chance at really turning the ship around and, and, and getting off this course that we seem on right now, where we seem to be headed towards a really, really bad result in the midterms of next year. And then, of course, we all worry about what that means for basically the future of American democracy. Because when you have one political party that's so anti-democratic, aligns itself so clearly just against America's founding ideals at the moment, as the Republican Party under Donald Trump does, 
then beating that party, you know, it's the stakes are higher than they are in electoral politics usually. So we got to really, really hope that the Democrats handle this and that the situation turns around. I'm going to be here, as always, every two weeks on America Explained, breaking down what the party does. If you want to hear more of my thoughts about this, then I also published two pieces in The Guardian recently that I'll link to in the show notes. But as always, thanks for tuning in. Please do a tell a friend about America Explained if you find it valuable. I always like to reach new listeners, and I look forward to speaking to you again next time. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.